coaches. Good day to you wherever you are. I hope this finds you well. It's a fine summer's day here in Amsterdam. And this is episode number, where are we? Episode number 40 now. And I'm going to be talking today with Mary Beth O'Neill. We're going to be exploring this combination of the mystical and the practical. So we'll talk about how we can help our clients go on their own hero's journey to discover who they are on this fundamental level. And how can they combine that discovery with having real tangible impact in the world? Mary Beth talks about how coaches are horse whisperers to anxious leaders in these times. She describes herself as a pragmatic philosopher and she has this passion of the intersection between neuroscience and mysticism. She's an executive coach with 25 years of experience working with CEOs and teams and she trains other coaches and her book Executive Coaching with Backbone and Heart is one of the overall best-selling books on coaching on Amazon. So just a heads up again about our neuroscience program that we're cooking up all about how do you apply the latest insights from neuroscience in coaching. Uh, you could find out more about that by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience. Just put your name and email in that sign-up box and then you'll stay in the loop about when more content comes out about this and the early bird. Also, I'd love it if you would share this podcast if you feel inspired to do so. And you can also leave a review. I just want as many coaches to benefit from it as possible. So let's dive in. Mary Beth O'Neill, how are you doing today? So uh, cool that we get this chance to speak. How's things? Things are great. How about you? Um, good. Also, also, yeah, I'm, um, I'm pretty busy um, with everything that's going on. Um, we've got this cool summit that's launching at the moment, um, which is just, um, I've been amazed by the feedback about it and, um, and it's stretching us, you know, it's a, a lot to do. So I'm sat with that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always, you know, anything that I find I'm interested in, at all, always at times, the project always uh, requires some level of overwhelm, but thank goodness there's excitement about it. <laughs> yeah, or else it's just the other one. And it's, uh, yeah. um, so we've got a lot to talk about today because you've been, you've been coaching ex- executives for a long time and um, uh, you know, you've written a, a beautiful book about that as well. So uh, we're going to talk about that. And at the same time, uh, you just sent me an email through saying, hey, you know, and the other thing on a personal level that I've been exploring for a while is ne- the neuroscience and mysticism. And so I was like, oh, well, let's, let's start there. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to just ask you, um, like, w- why is that important for you, that exploration? And what, what's it bringing for you? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's taken me a long time in my life to realize that I myself am a, a combination that seems to pull me in two different directions. Like I, I part of me, I, I think of myself as kind of a wild-eyed idealist philosopher. And I'm really interested in how, how, who are we and how, how are we put together and why are we here? You know, all those really big questions. And then on the other hand, 
I really want to make sure that whatever I do really has an effect in this actual world. <laughs> so, you know, when I was really young in college and following all the big questions, it was exciting, really exciting, fed my soul. But on the other hand, I just had this, this, uh, this uh, hunger to make sure that whatever I did made a difference. So I came to probably around my late 30s, early 40s, think of myself as a, as a pragmatic philosopher. And, you know, and, and, and I, that's, that's when I was in the middle of all my coaching work. And recently, you know, there's been this explosion around, well, I'm so glad to be alive now, you know, when the brain scientists are discovering such cool things about us uh, that we didn't know, you know, even, even 20 years ago, we didn't know. I know that mysticism is defined in so many different ways. There's so many different paths to it. So I'm just going to give a very simple definition to that, which is how do I connect to a very deep part of what I would call my greater self, something that's so far beyond the ego, mostly I don't even know about how, what a, what, how great of a being we are. How can I connect to that? And what I love about the intersection of mysticism and neuroscience is that there's, a, there's actually, there, there's a, there's a mysticism path in our brain. Our brains <clears throat> are constructed, <clears throat> excuse me, are constructed in ways that allow for the mystical experience. So what's cool about that is it's grounded into two things I love, which is what are the bigger questions of life and then how does it work? Mm-hmm. So, but, but how it's connected to coaching is that I believe if we're really you know, the central piece of coaching is that we are in some ways horse whisperers to anxious leaders. We, we by our presence, hopefully our non-anxious presence, we help leaders deal with their challenges in a way that they can confront the anxiety that they have about it and become more calm in the face of others' anxiety whom they, they are leading. And so really, we are on this massive journey with leaders. We're, we're companions to them as they're taking a, a, their own journey of transformation. We're on a journey of transformation because I think, you know, for me, it's neuroscience and mysticism. For you, it might be something else. For anybody listening, it might be something else. But I think as coaches, we all need to be connected to some soul-nurturing path so that we can be a calm presence in the face of the anxiety. Uh, Because, you know, actually, anyone who's talking to a coach and is serious about, you know, why they are, they are on a path of change. And in some ways, just talking, we represent all the anxiety that comes with change. So Mm -hmm. they're anxious, they look at us and we represent that to them. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, uh, they're projecting that onto us. So we have to get connected to something in us that allows us to be a calm presence in the face of that. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I just to, I want to ask you how you do that, how you connect to that thing, um, you know, that deeper part of yourself or the greater part. But um, what I like about what you're sharing too is that, you know, it, you know, there are a lot of anxious leaders out there in the world and um, trying to grow and change. And in some ways we could say, what are they growing and changing into? What is the part of them that would help them to thrive, you know, or to lead successfully in these times and i think you know in some way the answer might be that that greater or deeper part of themselves if they're only if they can only go around in the anxious part of themselves or their their ego to say you know then then there's not much room is there you know that they so mm-hmm. so i think i just see a big connection between your explanation exploration there of of mysticism and neuroscience and, um, you know, the kinds of places we can invite leaders to grow into. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I'm, I mean, uh, connected to the mystical journey a, a lot is, you know, Joseph Campbell's work, mm-hmm. where he talks about basically the hero's journey, the arc, the narrative arc of the hero's journey. And that's how I think of leaders who I work with is that they're on a hero's journey. They may not realize it, you know, they, they didn't think, oh, I'm on a hero's journey. I think I'll call Mary Beth and have her help me out. But <laughs> as we start to talk, I, I guess maybe one way to say it is I stand for being a, a, um, a presence that champions the hero's journey part of what it is that they need to change. And so, and part of the hero's journey, there's lots of pieces to it, but part of that journey is that the, the, the hero faces loss, and often the loss is that their ego is no longer running the show, and they, they um, contact their shadow side, and then they realize that actually there's hidden power in that side. And so then they learn to recognize themselves as a larger self beyond their ego concerns. And, you know, I see leaders doing that as I work with them. Like I said, they're not, they're not thinking of this as a big mythic journey when we meet, but if they can settle into the work and, and I'm, I'm not talking this way to leaders. I'm using everyday organizational language with them. But I'm on to what's actually happening with them. And so when they get to the point where as they're, they're being defensive with me and then they recognize that they're defensive with me and then they see, oh, there's a larger piece here. Oh, people see me differently than I see myself. Wow, this is useful information. Oh, I get to listen to this. Wait a minute, it's painful to listen to this. I mean, just all those those little steps that we help leaders make, that's, that's part of the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And so that by the end, when they're saying things to me like, oh my gosh, I'm in such a different place and I'm different at home. I'm, I'm different with my spouse. I see things differently. I'm on the board of some nonprofit and I'm bringing this stuff there. I can see how it's transformed their lives. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I, I want to ask you about, you know, how you work with coaches in a moment. But first, I want to stay with like your own exploration of this intersection between neuroscience and mysticism and um, ask you 
um, you know, like what, what have you discovered about that? You know, it sounds like you're learning how to connect to a, a greater self. And I'm curious how neuroscience might be helping you do that or, or like showing you a, a path to do that if you discovered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I should probably mention the, the particular path that I'm on or the teacher that has helped me so much because it makes sense then, you know, what, what I'm talking about. And uh, I am mostly learning from Dr. Joe Dispenza. Are you mm. familiar with him? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, he's a master at putting together neuroscience, mysticism, and quantum mechanics, <laughs> Mm. which is such a fun intersection. But so I've learned so much about brain science from him. And I've been to some of his workshops where uh, they actually uh, will, um, they're measuring the effect of uh, what's happening to your brain as we're in meditation. So I've had my brain mapped while meditating and also, you know, had been put on a heart monitor. So there's, so, so there's this elegant biofeedback that happens when one is in a meditative experience. And, and what's so exciting about this is that, you know, we, we've been discovering that, you know, Tibetan monks can do this after 25 years of practice. And, you know, the scientists have had a chance now to, map their brains and see what's happening. But Joe's working with normal everyday people and we have that capacity too. So part of the, what neuroscience has taught me through his work is that, and I'm such a great case of this, I am a very highly analytical person. I, I think first and then you know use other faculties as needed. <laughs> And uh, it's, you know, it's one of my strengths is that I, I can uh, a- analyze the world, put it in categories, and, you know, it's part of how I help leaders. I, I love the detective work uh, around, you know, helping them figure out what the heck is going on in their world. But that's not the meditative spirit. You know, that's not your brain. Brain on analytic waves is not going to get me to the deeper soul self. So it's needing to calm down enough and get into a almost daydream, dreamlike state, which is more the alpha and theta brain waves. And that's then what creates a sense of calm, a sense of goodwill, a sense of generosity. There's, it's, it's a fountainhead of all the emotional moods that we think of in the positive or higher frequency state. Mm -hmm. And the more I practice that, the more it's able to spill into my everyday life. And, you know, I meditate every day. Some days are great. Some days I don't never get out of my analytic brain. I, I consider myself still a kindergartner when it comes to this work, but even so, I, I myself, am, I can see over time that I'm transforming. Uh, I never into a more a, non-anxious presence than if I had were not doing this work. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, the the times we live in are almost like the 
this is the antidote or the, I don't know, that's not, that's not um, satisfying for me. It's like I've said, I've described it as a leadership dojo, you know, that because things are picking up in pace mm. and, and uncertainty and, um, you know, ambiguity that actually we're being really um, confronted with our need, you know, need to develop these capacities to mm-hmm. be able to, um, to, to shift our state and access this, this greater part of ourselves um, you know, as the antidote or as the, mm-hmm. as the way forward. So um, what's, what's, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think too, there's a big, there's bigger issues at stake also because as we, as we use technology more in the ways that we have, I'm just thinking, for example, the use, how much people use their smartphones. And we know that that changes brain states uh, you know, and, and the whole cell phone addiction, you know, that, you know, I, I need the, 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 the chemical hit of, you know, either searching on Google or going through my Facebook feed. Um, that does not feed the brain state that we've been talking about. And, you know, our brains are modeled and remodeled based on what we pay attention to. So the more we get distracted in our life by our technology, the less we have access to these deeper states. So I love that you're saying the dojo because uh, the way I think about it is how, how um, we used to think of, you know, in the Middle Ages when there was so much, uh, you know, <laughs> so much dominance and ignorance and uh, people, you know, sweeping through other people's nations and destroying half of them. And, and, and that often it was the monasteries who were preserving literally civilization, like whole libraries of knowledge. Mm. And I think that in some ways, those of us who are plugged into a deeper journey and developing our brains in a way that ancients used to do. I mean, we're not doing anything new. It's just that it's so different from this Western modernized world that in some ways we're preserving a, a, a part of humanity that is not being valued right now. And I'm curious how it, um, it you know, you said that it's changing. It, I feel it's spilling into my life. And I'm curious how it does so, and in particular into your coaching, because, um, and, and, and I guess what I'm even more, to be even more specific, it's like, they're, they're, we could say like, we're becoming more present and peaceful and calm. And I, and I love that. But do you find that, the, that it, it allows for other things to shine through? Like, for example, like, you, you know, you write about your um, signature presence, um, in, in your book, you know, and so does it allow for you to perceive differently or to show up differently as well, different characteristics to come through? Yes. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, I'm just remembering now that, you know, I'm acting like this is a new journey for me, which it is. I mean, it, this has been going on for about the last four and a half years with uh, Dispenza's work. But when I was a student and later a, a faculty member at the Leadership Institute of Seattle, part of our work, a, lo- a large part of our work, was helping people become more present to what is going on in the moment with themselves and between them and whomever they're with. Mm. 
So, and that was a competency, like you couldn't graduate until you could do that. <laughs> and it, so, and in the book, when I talk about immediacy, that's what I'm talking about. Mm. So the whole point of bringing backbone and heart and helping a leader develop their backbone and heart is about that ability to recognize, oh, not only, again, this is like the split between the analytical brain and then that calm center. Not only are there things I need to accomplish right now, and, you know, as a leader, they're usually trying to leverage or, or motivate or in some ways maneuver <laughs> their out exterior lives and people around them to accomplish something. Not only am I on that path and journey, but, oh, there are things happening right now in this moment that I need to attend to, like I've been defending my point of view as opposed to listening. People have been reacting to that point of view, and, I, and I, I, I've been responding back, but I've been reacting back. I haven't been listening back. Mm. So to be able to capture in the moment what they're doing, so, uh, and, and I'm helping them do that, but mm. I'm also having to do that myself. So I love being with a, a new, it could be a prospect, not even a, a client yet, being able to find a moment in that conversation where I can give them a little taste of what it's like to experience the moment. And I give them a little feedback of what it's like just experiencing them right now. And it's amazing how present people, it's like it snaps them right to the moment. And what's great about it is that it's, I'm giving them a little sample of what it's like to work with me as well. So uh, it has that double purpose of bringing them to the moment and then also they get a taste test of what future work with me would be like. So um, I'm curious how you do that. So you bring them into the present moment and you said also you give them feedback about, is that the feedback of how it is for you to be you know, in relationship with them in the moment? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I'll think, uh, I mean, I'll, I, you know, I'm obviously experiencing in, in some way. And I will uh, put a pause on the, on the content of the conversation and talk about how I'm experiencing them. In the book, I give an example of someone who is very verbose. They just keep talking, 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 talking. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking, why are you asking? To myself, a little thought bubble above my head. I'm thinking, why do you think you want to coach? Because you know, you're not letting anybody in to, to even respond to what you're saying. Like he was just talking so much. And so, the, of course, there's a challenge in that because I can't just say, you talk too much. I'm, and I'm, I'm getting kind of upset that you won't let me talk. You know, it's like, Okay, that, that would be too sharp a sword to use. So part of the, the challenge is how do, I, how do I use my backbone with heart? How do I stay connected to him? Well, I'm going to give him a piece of feedback that's going to be challenging. So what I'm doing in the moment, and this requires a calm presence to do this, is I, I do a little bit of a disconnect from the words and, I'm, and I'm, I do a scan of how am I experiencing him? And what are the things that are standing out that I don't like? 
and what are the what what are the um, what are the hidden uh, positives about that? So my response to him was, I said, okay, um, before I respond to what you're saying, I want to give you just a little experience of I just find there are so many things. So I'm giving the benefit here. There are so many things that you're talking about that really stimulate my thinking. I mean, it, it causes me to go in very many places. Uh, a, very, a lot of topics are stimulated in me from what you're saying. Now, because you continue to talk, I'm finding that I don't have an opening to respond to you around what you're saying. And there's so many great topics that you're bringing up. And I don't have a place in the conversation with you. And so that's the one-to-one. That's like what's happening between you and me. That's a very present moment. And then the immediacy is I'm going to capture immediately this moment, and now I'm going to connect it to his outside world. So then I said, and I'm wondering if your staff has the same experience with you that I'm having with you now. And then I just stop and pause and see what happens. I'm also qualifying him because what is he going to do with this little piece of feedback? Because this is the kind of feedback I give in a contract. So if he can't handle this, then we aren't a good match. So I'm sitting there. I'm not, I'm just, I'm, here's the other, there's a, there's a commitment to not be the next person to talk, no matter how long it takes for him to talk. Hmm. So, Uh, There's an invitation, and I'm not going to let my anxiety be the first one to break the silence. So as I say in the book, it's like an an, an infinity of 45 seconds went by before he said anything. And in my own mind, I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm not going to get this contract. He's really upset by what I said. All my anxieties get sort of worked up. But my job is to not... uh, Express, don't lead with my own anxiety. This is a chance for him to face himself. And what he said was, to my great relief, <laughs> he said, oh, I bet it is. I, I never thought of that, but I bet it is. Because this is how I talk to my staff. I, I just have so much going on inside, and I want to share it all. And I believe that in that moment is when he decided that I would be a good partner with him in coaching. And I decided it could work with him because he was able to absorb the challenge. Yeah. And um, I, I, lo- I love that example you share. And I think that's what a lot of people are actually really wanting in the coaching, you know, is um, both to be able to, to have someone that takes them into the present moment and how they're showing up and is able to reflect that back, you know, because you, you mentioned this like snapping kind of like, mm-hmm. um, I think that's what takes the coaching out of being two talking heads, you know, into something yes. very, very different. Yes. And another way you asked how it shows up for me, uh, feedback I've gotten from people like at the end of our contracts, and I, I've gotten this pretty consistently. And so I'm going to share with you kind of how that works. But what they say at the end is, you know, you're, you're straightforward and you, they don't say it exactly in these words, but basically what they're saying is 
you tell me scary stuff about myself, like things I don't want to hear. Uh, but I always, this is what they always say, but I always know you're on my side. Mm. Now, how that happens is that I try to be as behaviorally descriptive about what they're doing as possible, as opposed to saying, you know, you're, you're being really rude. You talk so much, you're being rude. You know, well, that's not all that behaviorally <laughs> mm. uh, descriptive. I try to be as behaviorally descriptive as possible and then link it to kind of, I love, I, 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 I'm a very playful person. I like to have fun, even when, when uh, we're talking about serious topics. And I love to share with people the foibles of human existence. I mean, we're just funny beings, if you think about it. We just get ourselves into dilemmas and we tie ourselves into knots. And, you know, we, and again, in our ego, we're trying to protect ourselves. And then in the end, it's like, it really was no big deal. And so I, tr I bring in, I find a way to have a playful mood and to laugh at my own foibles mm -hmm. so that it, it then becomes not so scary for them. And they kind of, I sort of invite them into the shallow end of the pool of having um, some lightness about their own foibles. Mm -hmm. And it helps them then when I'm challenging them very directly, they also know that there's this very playful side and that I, we're all in this together. I'm not standing above or away from them. I have exactly the same foibles and challenges that they do. And so this piece about, I always feel like you're on my side, means that um, humanity, you know, we're, 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 we're exploring our humanness and it's both a really serious piece of work and it's also really funny. And so to be, so we, we then become more like companions on the journey around that rather than seeing it as a dead serious uh, path that they have to walk on. Yeah. And I think that um, probably there's a, there's a, uh, some neuroscience behind that, you know, bringing in the humor piece and the lightness because yeah, if it gets deadly serious, it gets tight, doesn't it? Yes. Um, it, you know, and yes. Part, part of moving to, um, I think, beyond the egoic self is not taking itself so seriously. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. I mean, as anxiety goes up, thoughtfulness goes down. Mm. So, you know, as much as I, at least on this podcast, I've, I've made fun of my analytic brain, but when I'm calm, it's easy to think clearly. So part of our work is here we are, we're, we're, we're facing anxious leaders and part of our work is to help them not hang on so tightly to their point of view that they can't think clearly about it. So, so that's what I'm talking about. Horse whispering to anxious leaders is just helping them calm down as well. And Edwin Friedman, uh, who's a, was a, uh, one of the, uh, well, early forebears, I'd say of family systems theory, often talked about this, that really uh, anxiety is contagious and, and will we'll just kind of flow through. You see it in work systems or families all the time. Just, it's like electricity just flows through a group. But calm, a calm presence is also contagious. Uh, that's a nice thing about we're human beings. We can pick up um, emotional moods from each other. 
So it's another reason why we need to be a calm presence, but also why leaders need to be a calm presence because often their teams are anxious. So again, this is really part of um, a larger journey, the hero's journey or a sacred journey of helping us get better connected to our larger selves so that we're able to do this work together with them. I, I like uh, that you bring this in because someone I spoke to recently shared that, you know, um, when science came into uh, psychology and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get the, the dates and the theory exactly right here, but the general gist of what they were saying was um, science came into psychology and you had behavioralism and cognitive, sci- cognitive psychology and a lot of brilliant things came out of that. You know, they started mapping things and, um, but they threw out this idea of a, of a greater self, like soul, so to speak, because it wasn't scientific. And there was something lost in that, you know, that, that like um, this, this perhaps we, we diminished our capacity to access this greater self by, by throwing that out. And um, so I'd like hearing now that, you know, there's also neuroscience and mysticism being played, uh, you know, being brought together in a way that I think um, – creates a lot of possibility and potential. It does. And also, um, you know, there's, there's been such a war between the soul and science. And thankfully, neurosciences and quantum mechanics actually is realizing, oh, where is consciousness? Is it just all in our brains or is it diffused um, among us and maybe in the universe, like, oh my gosh, what are we really talking about here? It's so fun to see the, <laughs> the disciplines have to uh, play well together now <laughs> yeah. instead of go to their own corners. But uh, so, you know, behaviorism was an extreme point of view. I got to say, though, that, you know, my master's in, is in applied behavioral science. I value, this is what I say about being as behaviorally specific as possible. That is an incredibly powerful tool. And so I think that what we can do is combine these two, uh, help people contact a greater self in in them, that they have a greater uh, resource they can depend on. They have more resilience than they can even imagine. And at the same time, be very incisive, be very clear. I'm constantly pushing leaders to be behaviorally specific with what, it, what their vision, what it is they want from people, um, what their expectations are, all being very behaviorally specific because uh, um, very generalized, what I call corporate speak, when all they're doing is talking in categories, is actually not that useful and a lot of people can hide out in it. So I think that's, again, it's a crossroads. My passion is always in the intersection of a crossroads. And the crossroads there is uh, we're, we're speaking to and uh, helping them develop their greater self. And while they also need to hone the tool of being more behaviorally specific. Well, I, 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 what I like about that is it's, it's that, you know, you said at the beginning, who are we? But what is the effect? Uh, what ha- what effect does it have in this world? You know, and that combination of it being being deep and practical, I think, is so important. Um, a, a question I have is like, do you introduce 
leaders into that sense of greater self, you know, or do you just allow that to happen naturally through the coaching, you know, like, would you ever introduce that as a concept or is it is, yeah. Or do you do it by, you know, guiding people in, in presence or something or. I think that if I were to follow myself around all day and and answer your question, like, what is it you really do? Mm. I think I don't, I don't talk about a lot. I don't lead with it. What I am doing is I'm, I'm leading by being it. And the being is from the second I'm meeting them, even if it's on the phone, I'm holding a point of view about them that they can't even imagine yet. And the point of view I'm holding is whatever, whatever it is that brought you to a conversation with me and whatever you believe is your challenge and how, no matter how daunted you feel by that challenge, you may feel defeated. You may feel afraid of it. You may be frustrated. You may be angry. Like you've been sent to a coach because you've been Mm. told you need coaching. You know, you may be reactive about it. I know that you're way more resilient than you feel right now. I'm just automatically from the very beginning holding that space for them. Mm. And I'm also working on being my own calm presence with them. And then I'm finding opportunities to meet them in the moment with these immediate immediacy feedback opportunities, because that will get them in touch with, Oh, wow. There's, there's, there's other ways to look at even what's happening right now in conversations. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm doing that. And then I'm also pushing them to be as specific as possible because, uh, how do I say this? If I'm looking just at the soul journey, that's about expansiveness and it, it's not about our behavioral senses. Mm. But I'm also asking them to engage, you know, the five senses and describe what, you know, what do you want? What do you aspire to? What, what should they be doing? What, what more do you want from them? What more do you want from you? What would that look like? So I'm right from the beginning also asking them, even though they didn't tell me they wanted to do this, <laughs> be, become ambidextrous. Start, you know, um, start to think of yourself and practice being larger than you are now. And how are you going to really engage in the nitty gritty that, you know, that's, that's learning how to tap the top of your head and rub your tummy at the same time. It's like, what? (laughs) But if, but if, if they can start to enter into that journey with me, it really helps them in moments where now they got to stand up in front of their staff and they got to say something really nitty gritty and specific. Like I expect, you know, we're going to, we're going to up our time frame. We're going to make this half the amount of time we usually take to do it. Whoa. You know, and then everyone reacting to that. And how are they going to be a calm presence doing it? So, you know, the very thing I'm starting to talk to them about from the very beginning is what I know they are going to need to have to do. So that's soul broadening 
right there. And I've never used the word soul with them. Mm. And, but <laughs> the language that I use, backbone and heart, is a way into that whole journey. Yeah, could you, could you, you've used that phrase a few times now, and um, those who've read your book may know what it is, but could you say what you mean by backbone and heart? Well, you know, this isn't in the book, but it's the same thinking, but I've, I've sort of come to picture it or imagine it differently. And I now think of that there's something I'm calling the leader success blueprint. If you think of like a, a, a staircase where there's three, there's three steps. Uh, these are ways of being and, and what they need to do for them to be successful. And when I say successful, I mean successful in the real world. You know, they, they actually create the results they need to create, but also they're able to tap into this larger presence that mm. they can have so that they can pull this off. Well, the first stair step is they, they need to answer the question for themselves how do I face the leadership challenges I tend to avoid, right? That, we've been talking about that this whole time. How do I face the leadership challenges I tend to avoid? So I'm helping them face versus avoid their challenges. Mm. And the only way they can do that is to start to uh, become stronger it's it's like building more muscle in leading with backbone and heart backbone being able to define themselves what it is that they think feel and want and articulate that clearly to others and be able to maintain that stance in the midst of others anxiety <laughs> and there's a lot of ands here <laughs> and that they're able to see what are the dysfunctional patterns that they're going to have to challenge and that they work, they take action to breaking those dysfunctional patterns. That's all in the area of backbone and then heart. And I say backbone and heart. It's very critical to be able to be and do this together. Heart is I have empathy and you know that's becoming in short supply these days in the world. I have empathy. I can understand a viewpoint that others hold that is not my own. I can let them know that I understand this. I can paraphrase it back. I can summarize it back to them and they, in such a way that the other person goes, oh, you're not doing this just because you, you know, have to act like you took a listening class. But the, the person goes, oh, you really get me. Yes, that's exactly what's going on for me. It's true listening, true articulating what that stance is that the other person has, and being willing to be affected by the other person's stance. I'm willing to be influenced by it. So backbone heart, you can see that's that in itself, to be able to do backbone and heart, because we're born usually, born and raised, usually to be able to do one or the other, if we're lucky. Some people were not born and raised to do either, mm. but uh, very few of us have been born and raised and trained to be able to do both at the same time in an anxious situation. Mm. So that in and of itself 
really is another definition of soul deepening transformation. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I just see how I've had to develop more backbone. You know, I think heart came to me more naturally than backbone. Mm-hmm. And, but how, um, what a powerful combination to have both of those. Um, and you, you said like uh, this leadership success blueprint um, and uh, you said there was like, I think three or two, you, you'd name mm-hmm. one, like how do I, I think mm-hmm. you said, how do I face leadership challenges that I tend to avoid? Mm-hmm. Um, could you like, it was the rest of those. Uh, the, sure. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are three steps altogether. So the first one, and the way I think of it is as you go to the next step, you actually have to bring all that you've learned from the one before it. So they get more complex as you go up. So the second step is how do I use my authority humanely? Because again, the use of authority, that's problematic these days also. A lot of people are reactive to the, the authority that comes with their role as a leader or, or, if they're not reactive to it, others are reactive to it. And then we have all these authoritarian movements (laughs) around the world that kind of feed the anxiety about the use of authority. But the leader has to, this is a challenge that they have to face. How do I use my authority humanely? And then the third step is, and you can see where part of using it humanely is bringing their backbone and heart, right? That's how they're bringing that previous step into it. And then they have to bring their backbone and heart and use of authority humanely to the third step, which is how do I help my team get to the next level? And by that, I mean, well, there's kind of a a one word motto or verb for each of the steps. So the first step is how do I face the leadership challenges I tend to avoid? The, 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 uh, The key word there is express meaning they need to express their backbone and heart in all they say and do. Hmm. And then the one word around how do I use my authority humanely is the one word is unlock. They need to unlock authority and use it as a resource as opposed to running away from it or abusing it. And then the, the word for the third step, how do I help my team get to the next level there the word is integrate because what they need to do is integrate the three three kind of the way i think of it is the leader is a uh, juggling three balls in the air and they've got to keep all three balls in the air and often leaders are are dropping one or two or all three on the ground and the three are using their backbone and heart transforming themselves the second one is creating a team that's engaged and productive and the third one is actually, you know, achieving bottom line results. That mm. The leader has to integrate all three and keep those always in play. And that's what gets their teams to the next level. Mm. And so um, just a question I have is like, how do I help my team get to the next level? Um, I imagine if you're um, able to have backbone and heart and um, and unlock your authority, then that also feeds into it. But what, is there a key to um, helping the people you coach to then help their teams get to the next level? 
Well, yes, um, this, you know, this has been a kind of a, an outcome of 30 years of coaching <laughs> with, mm. uh, and also I've worked closely with Roger Taylor, who's, who's a, uh, my co-author. Uh, we're writing a book called Leading with Backbone Heart. And uh, Roger has developed something called the Leadership Alignment Cycle. And what, what it is, is if you, if you look around the, the circle, it's got five different areas or activities that leaders sh- should be involved in, like leadership vision, getting your leadership team aligned, uh, coordinating the leadership team, cascading that alignment through organization, and then performance management. If you, you know, I, I can say those five and you think, yeah, check, check, check. Yeah, yeah, leaders should be doing that. But how often do leaders do that, again, with a calm presence? Mm-hmm. And what he and I have discovered, and then what's in the middle is what we call leadership maturity. And that's where the use of backbone and heart and busting patterns, <laughs> busting dysfunctional patterns and creating uh, uh, productive patterns live and that you need to bring that to each of the areas. So uh, this is a long answer to your question, but what, what we've discovered working with leaders and we each have our own businesses, but when we deal with larger um, contracts in organizations, we have hired each other when we need a second consultant or coach. And so we've done a lot of work together. We, we both bring the systemic view to executive coaching. So what's nice about that is we've, we've uh, worked in the room with the same client. And so besides talking about our own business, separate businesses, we can uh, reference, you know, things we saw and what we did and what we saw them do. And what we've been able to pull out after all these years are the best practices. What are the, and again, very behaviorally based, what are the best practices for creating a leadership vision? What's the best practice for getting your leadership team aligned? What's the best practice to coordinate your team? And best practice means what are the interactional behaviors? What does the leader need to do with their team? What does the team need to do with each other? What does the team need to do back with the leader? What are the very, you know, because we've been, we've been lucky fortunate to be able to work with leaders who either had these abilities from the beginning and we're like just taking notes. Wow. That was a great thing to do with their team or Mm. we've helped them develop these behaviors and we've, and we've seen it work team after team after team. So that's the kind of work that I and we have done Mm. either separately or together with leaders to help them. For example, what does a leader do when they need to get their team aligned to something that they know is going to be controversial? Uh, Roger has created this, what he calls the three-act play of getting alignment with a team. And the second act is about hearing what the responses and the reactions and, you know, frankly, the anxiety of the team mm-hmm. around where they where the leader is now saying they they are going to have to go now sure everybody knows you need to give time give time of, for the team to give their reactions but they think of it as just something they can 
go, yeah, oh yeah, I did that. I, yeah, sure. I, I told them in an email where we were going and if they had any reactions, they could let me know. You know, no, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is where the leader is in deep listening around those reactions. And this is where, you know, paraphrase and summary is, a, is your friend. If you are using heart, not you're doing it in a manipulative way, but really take the time to listen and play back to people. What are the core concerns they have? Even deeper than what they were saying, can you really get down to what are the core concerns and begin to let yourself be influenced by that and shift if you can and then also bring loving and compassionate backbone to the extent that you can't. So how do you express yourself? How do you say clearly, I, I can shift in these ways, but I, 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 I can't shift on, for example, the deadline, hmm. and how to do that in such a way that the team uh, stays with you and goes with you. So we've been, we've been fortunate enough to help teams, leaders do that and to, frankly, witness leaders who already could do that. And we've captured what those behaviors are. And mm. so part of the work is uh, helping leaders now take those behaviors to their own teams. And um, did you say that book you're writing at the moment? Yes, although it's a little on hiatus because we both have other projects we're working on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know when it's going to come out, but I'm really excited about whenever it does. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I, I want to keep an eye out for that. That sounds an excellent book. Um, and, and which Joe Dispenza book would you recommend people go to first? Uh, it depends on their interest. Um, the first one I read was called Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. Mm. And it's a broader book. Um, so depending on what your habit is, if your habit, if you want to change something about your health, your relationships, your work, it's a, it can be applied in, in all areas. The other book that I would recommend is You Are the Placebo. That mm. one has all the same information, but it's more focused around health. Mm. I got to say, though, uh, in terms of how it's written, you are the placebo i think is a masterpiece of mm. of written uh the way he condenses all this very complex thinking beautiful wow i'm going to check that out um oh, i think we've covered a lot of topics today um <laughs> and um i feel that we could speak again so perhaps we can um, we can do that again um uh, I just want to thank you. Um, is there anything you want to share as um, I also, I want to give you the chance, you know, where we can find out more about your work, but is there anything you want to share um, um, with the audience as a closing statement, perhaps mm. put you on the spot there? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I would like to invite everyone into again, you know, I say I'm passionate about being at, at, at the crossroads at the intersection um, I do believe that it would be a next level of coach work. Uh, what we could do for the coaching field is if each one of us could really be able to hold both this soul deepening work that we do with leaders and also this very specific, very 
uh, grounded in the five senses, very behaviorally specific work with leaders. I, I, I believe that there are coaches who are very good at one or the other, but I, I think it's time for us now as a field to be able to be doing both and. And I would just really invite and welcome people into that journey with me. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for that. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> That's a great invitation. I feel that. I feel the importance of that invitation. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, I'm not sure what will come of that, but I hope that touches people listening and, and somehow um, sparks something in them. And, and I don't know if they reach out to you or what, but you know, my wish is for the coaching field to evolve. And I love when people make these calls like that. Mm. So, mm-hmm. Well, so thank, thank you, you for the invitation to do it. Yeah. And um, of course, you mentioned the seven uh, red flags of leaders avoidance, um, which is a document you've created. We're going to put a link to that on the podcast page so uh, people can check that out, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's just uh, I think of it as a blueprint. It's just it's uh, it's like shorthand. So it gives you a sense of how what I see as typical ways that leaders avoid their challenge. And then it's a very quick kind of map on what coaches could do to respond to that. So it's, it's not, you know, as deep as we've gone, but it's, it's like a very fast flashpoint blueprint. Hmm. Great. And, and, and what's your website address? MBOexecutivecoaching.com. All right. Thanks, Mary Beth. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure, Joel. Alrighty, here we are, the other side of the podcast. It's Joel here again. And I just want to take one moment just to tell you about the program we're cooking up on the neuroscience of transformational coaching. We're talking to many of the leading voices in this field, and we're going to put them together in one program, which is going to show you how to apply the latest thinking in neuroscience to up-level your coaching. So if you want to stay in the loop about that, you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash neuroscience. You just put your name and email in the sign-up box you find there. You'll stay in the loop about when neuroscience and coaching content is released and when the early bird is available. And I will see you in the next episode of the podcast. Be well.